0: Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Vengedi. How beautiful you are, my darling, oh how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my beloved, oh how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall And let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Listen, my beloved, look. Here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the rugged
1: hills." Thanks, Mel. Uh, Well read. I think we're going to say that a fair bit during this series. Um, We did uh, speculate about whether we got um, uh, people to read it in parts, get a couple of people at the front, but we thought that could be a little bit too awkward. Uh, uh, Good morning. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Siena Hill. It's great you can join us for church this morning. Um, uh, Why don't I pray as we uh, approach God's word together? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you speak, you're a God who, who longs to reveal yourself to us, uh, but you also reveal to us your wisdom on how to live in the world that you have made. And so, Lord, we pray this morning as we hear your word that we might receive that wisdom from you uh, so that we can be people wherever we're at in life that live uh, relationships that are filled with words that build up, uh, that we might have lives of character and integrity that we might love others like you have loved us in Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to let you know, you might be surprised to hear this, but there was a moment in my life where I was a love guru. I was. I was 21. Adele and I had just, been, uh, just, just started dating. Uh, and this new relationship status, uh, some of you might know, it came off the back of four years of rejection, uh, four years of Adele telling me that she wasn't interested. But for some, some reason, somehow, and 20 years later, I still can't work it out, Adele decided to reverse her decision and all of a sudden we were going out. And off the back of that, among the guys at church, I was a bit of a hero. <laughs> I was a beacon of hope. I was the one they went to for love advice for this brief moment. For this brief moment in 2003 at our church in Sydney, I was the man. I held court in our local McDonald's. (laughs) Over thick shakes and fries, people came to receive my love wisdom. Now, my brief moment in the sun as a dispenser of love advice, it compares like nothing to the words here in Song of Songs. You see, Song of Songs, it claims to be God's authoritative wisdom on love and relationships. It claims to be the ultimate song about love. It's the song of songs. Of all the love songs that have ever been written, this one claims to be the greatest. The greatest love song there ever is. Uh, and this song of songs actually comes to us uh, at a really uh, like critical time. You see, uh, our world has turned sex and relationships into a commodity. We live in a world that prizes lust over love where people are reduced as uh, to be objects for our pleasure we're told that even in relationships we're to pursue and prioritize whatever makes me happy regardless of the consequences for other people and so in a world that is so confused about love and sex and relationships here we have god's better love song for us the song of songs his better picture for relationships And it's a collection of, of beautiful words, of romantic poetry, it's a collection of love songs, it's a collection of sweet nothings whispered between one lover and another, but it is a book for all of us. Now all of God's word is good for all of God's people. So whether we are married or single or widowed or divorced or engaged or dating, uh, this book is good for all of us, because it will speak to all of us about how to relate well with one another. It'll speak to us about how to love and how to pursue love. It'll speak to us about how to glorify God with our bodies, wherever we are at in our relationships. It'll speak about how our human experiences of love, how they can be a reflection of the ultimate love that God has shown us. You see, the Song of Songs, it will sing to us the greatest love song. It'll sing to us the greatest love song that goes into all eternity. It will sing to us of a love that comes from God, that overcomes sin, and brokenness, and loneliness. It'll sing to us of a self-giving, sacrificial love from God that is the perfect model for us to follow in our relationships. So welcome to Song of Songs, the most controversial book in the Bible. But before we get started, what is it even doing there? What is it even doing in the Bible? The Song of Songs speaks of unashamed love. It has descriptions of passionate kissing and intimacy. It has images of gardens and mountains and lilies. It describes the most intimate parts of life in a sensitive way, never vulgar, but it's over time proved too raunchy for some. Uh, so what is this love poetry doing here? It's, uh, this love poetry, it would make your granny blush, but it's sitting here right next to the prophet Isaiah, who, who speaks about God in majestic visions in all his glory. Why are those two things together in the Bible? Uh, well, to answer that question, there's a few hurdles we need to get, uh, get over before we get stuck into the text. The first hurdle is, how do we actually read it? Uh, over centuries, Christians have sought to answer that question and to save some of the awkwardness by concluding that Song of Songs is just an allegory a proverb, a metaphor. It's not actually talking about uh, sex and relationships. It just uses sex and relationships to talk about something else altogether. Uh, In 553 AD, at the Second Council of Constantinople, uh, the church officially banished a literal reading of Song of Songs. Uh, And it enshrined the only way you could read this in churches uh, was for it to be a spiritual reading. And so, Song of Songs was said to be uh, read as an allegory, where all the characters in the book uh, they represented a spiritual relationship. And so, the man and the woman they might represent God and the Church, or God and Israel, or even Mary and the Church. Uh, and so, if you have a look there at uh, chapter one, verse thirteen, uh, Mel read for us uh, chapter one, verse thirteen. My beloved to me is a sach- so, sorry, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh, resting between my breasts. Now, the allegorical interpretation reads that the sachet of myrrh is obviously Jesus, resting between the breasts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> Convinced? Yeah, nah. Anyway, some wacky interpretations are there, and, and, uh, but, uh, but the allegorical reading may not be always as silly as it sounds. Many of the images that are used here in the Song of Songs are used elsewhere to describe the relationship between God and his people. Israel is described as a bride and a vineyard belonging to God. In the New Testament, we read that the church uh, is described as Christ's bride uh, and that the relationship between Christ and the church, that's to be the model for the relationship between a husband and a wife. And so it's right that the descriptions here of this loving relationship they will help us understand the relationship between God and his people. But it isn't simply an allegory. Song of Songs here describes real love between real people in a real world. And we don't need to be ashamed of that. You see, if understood correctly, biblical Christianity is the most body-positive, most sex-positive religion in the world. You see, in the very first chapters of the Bible, God makes a good creation, and that includes the man and the woman. It includes love, sex, and relationships. It's not as though God made Adam and Eve in the garden, and then he turned his back for a moment, and then he turned around, and he's like, oh my goodness, what are you guys doing? Where did you get the idea to do that? No, sex, love, romance, intimacy, friendship, it was all made by God, and it was made to be good. Now sin distorts that and breaks that, Uh, it it fractures the good creation that God has made. uh, Sin brings selfishness and frustration and brokenness, Uh, it brings it into the picture and we have to deal with that. But we need to never forget the, the original design, as God made the world, it was made to be good. A good blessing from a good God to his people. And so sexual desire and intimacy in its right place and at its right time, it's beautiful and it's holy and it's a blessing. And God's word says it's thoroughly good. Uh, Which is why God's world, in particular Song of Songs, will have plenty to say about it. How to do love and sex and relationships in a way that is healthy and blesses those around us and is glorifying to God. So as we read Song of Songs, we're reading something that describes reality. The man is a man, the woman is a woman, the body parts are body parts. It's all part of God's wisdom to live in his world, his way. And now the second hurdle we need to clear is right there in verse 1. The very first word of the book, actually. Verse 1 begins with Solomon's Song of Songs. Uh, Now, the song, this ultimate uh, love song, it is sung under a dark cloud. King Solomon, uh, uh, you see, this is Solomon's Song of Songs. I'm not sure how how much you know about the King Solomon, uh, but there are two things that uh, he's most famous for, uh, and they're the two things that might make him the most qualified or disqualified, depending on how you think about it, person to write the ultimate love song, the ultimate song about love, sex, and marriage. The first thing is, King Solomon was said to be the wisest man who had ever lived. Uh, the wisest man who had ever lived. And you'd have to be, if you of going to put yourself out there and say you're writing the definitive book on love. The second thing was, so it was the wisest man who ever lived, the second thing was Solomon, from what we're told, was very experienced. 1 Kings 11 says that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. But that does present us with a bit of a problem. His experience is a bit of a problem for us, isn't it? How could he be so wise, yet fail spectacularly to live according to God's pattern, according to God's word? I mean, how can he be so wise, and yet take on 700 (laughs) mothers-in-law? You see, Solomon, he casts a dark shadow over the book. You see, from what we know about Solomon, he treated women like objects for sex. Solomon used his power and his wealth and his strength to dominate others for his own pleasure. So how on earth could God's wisdom of love and relationships have any connection to someone like him? Well, King Solomon he he is in the book. But we need to be clear, he is not one of the lovers' voices that we hear in the book. Solomon is the anti-type, he is the opposite of godly relationships. Now, we don't know this for sure, but there is a good chance, and there's a few little clues in the book, uh, there's a chance that Solomon in his old age came to his senses, and then in his old age, as he realised where he went spectacularly wrong, he used his God-given wisdom to write this song about a relationship he never got to experience. He used his God-given wisdom to write about what he wished he had done. And warning us not to make the same mistakes that he had made. So, what's Song of Songs doing here in the Bible? Well, it's God's wisdom for good relationships. The poem will describe two people relating well. They're not perfect, life is not easy for them, but they are growing as friends and they are growing as lovers. And through the words of this couple, they help us pursue help us as God's people pursue godly relationships relationships of tenderness and of love and of perseverance and it's relevant to us all it's relevant to us all because as we walk with these lovers our chins are constantly raised so that our eyes can see the greater lover the Lord Jesus Christ in their love we see a reflection of his love the one who loved us with a everlasting self-giving love Okay, that's enough of the hurdles. Let's get stuck in. Uh, Let's see uh, what this book has to say about beautiful words. Uh, In the time that we've got left, we're going to uh, look at uh, the power of words to bless others, to bless a relationship. Have a look there in chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. As we begin, we meet a a young woman who's engaged to her man, probably a local shepherd boy. As you go through the book, there's times where it seems like they're engaged, looking forward to marriage. There's there's times where it feels like they're, they're actually already married and enjoying married life together. But here the woman is engaged to her man, this local shepherd boy, and she's chatting with her girlfriends, and she just explodes with this powerful earthquake of desire for him. She wants to be with him. She wants to be kissed by him. She just loves him to bits. And her shepherd boy is her king. He's not actually a king. he's a shepherd, but to her, he's her king. And it says there, verse two, she is intoxicated by his name. Verse two, did you see it there? "Your name is like perfume poured out." Now his name here, his name is his character. There is something about this man that people want to be around. There is something about this man that makes him a safe place, a constructive place. He is a man of integrity. He is stable. He is consistent. He is prayerful. He is dependent upon God. I don't know whether you realize it, but it's pretty profound, isn't it, that uh, the first thing, the greatest love song that ever was written, the first thing that it celebrates, it's not physical beauty, It's character. who you are when no one is looking. You see, the key to a good relationship, the foundation for a good relationship, whether it be a marriage or a friendship or anything else, the key is character. Now, many of us will have pursued relationships with no character. They were hot. They were available. They were helpful for a need that you had. They swiped the right way on the app. But when someone you love is disappointing on the inside, the relationship is always going to be disappointing on the outside. You see, godly character is to be treasured. It's to be celebrated. It's to be pursued. That's whether you're 21 or 91, character is king. Now, maybe Solomon here is offering a critique of himself. Solomon, he was hot, he was rich, he was powerful, but his character was rubbish. And so his relationships were a total mess. And the person of character, they, they, they bring security to those around them. They bring safety to those around them by their words. Look there at verse 5. In verse 5, we see the woman, she's sharing a personal struggle with her friends. Verse 5, she says, Dark I am, yet lovely. Daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. You see this woman, she wakes up in the morning, and she looks into the mirror, and she does not like what she sees she doesn't see a a princess with perfect skin she's dark not not racially dark she's dark because she's been weathered by the sun she's been working outdoors day after day her family life has been difficult she's not a princess from a perfect home she's been forced by her family to go and work outside and she's had to do it for a long time so that her own body her vineyard it has been neglected And it shows. It shows in what she can see, and it shows because she is full of doubt and insecurity. Don't stare at me, she says in verse 6. Now, self-doubt is experienced by most people. Uh, Most of us, when we get up and we look in the mirror in the morning, uh, we might see parts that are bigger or smaller than we would like, greyer or weaker, more wrinkly. But self-doubt creates fear. And self-doubt creates Uh, insecurity and insecurity creates barriers in relationships but have a look at verse 8 verse 8 if you do not know most beautiful women follow the tracks of the sheep and gaze and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds i liken you my darling to a mare among pharaoh's chariot horses Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with a string of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. What's going on here is her man breaks her chains of self-doubt with his words. He breaks her chains of self-doubt with his words. He doesn't give her advice. He doesn't suggest that she maybe needs to go shape up, maybe she could use some lotions to help with her skin. No, he doesn't do any of that. He just over and over and over tells her that she is the most beautiful woman in the world. Not because she's a supermodel, but because that's who she is to him. She has become his standard of beauty. And then he compares her to one of Pharaoh's horses. Bit of a fool might not be the words every woman wants to hear you trot like a Clydesdale um I wouldn't recommend using that one uh but what but in those days what he is saying to her he's he's saying to her you are impressive to me you are beautiful to me you are you are exciting to me and we see there in verse 10 he considers her cheeks and her neck in chapter 7 uh you know uh The man's going to consider her whole body, her waist, her breasts, her neck, her eyes, her nose, her hair. He'll even say in chapter 7, verse 2, your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. He's not saying kind of your belly button is a good place to hold a beer, but um, (laughs) the images are lost on us, but it's obvious what he's doing, isn't it? He's kind of gushing with affectionate words, gushing with words that soothe her and heal her and lift her up. He is saying... I love you just the way that you are. And his words, where do they flow from? They flow from in here. They flow from his heart. They flow from his character. Because all words, they flow from our heart. It's Jesus who said, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now He was using it to speak about people who say horrible things, but it works the other way as well. Dodgy character, damaging words. Good character, godly character, uplifting words. So the woman, she hears him, and then she knows that she is loved. Have you ever heard the story about the couple who have been married for years and years? Decades, actually. And the wife turns to her husband and says, do you still love me? And the husband responds irritated. He said, I said on our wedding day and I'll let you know if anything changes. May it never be for us. No husband, no wife, even no friend can ever offer their their spouse, their friend too much affection. Using words to bring life using words to banish self-doubt. They've done studies on uh, how our words impact people. They say for every harsh comment, that carries the weight of about 10 compliments. How's that for a ratio? For every harsh comment, that's, that's worth about 10 compliments in how it affects someone's heart. Tremper Longman, a helpful Bible teacher, he says this. He says, God calls husbands and wives to use our words to push back the chaos and shape our lives into order and beauty. He calls us to use our words to bring life to, to those who hear them. By your words, you can push back the chaos. And these affectionate words, they're not just for lovers, are they? Do you know the one who speaks the most affectionate words in the universe? Well, it's God. Hear these words from the prophet Jeremiah. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, and what does God say? I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. God speaks abundant, affectionate words to us. He delights in his people. He sings over his people. He speaks words of love to his people. And let that be a model to us. You see, affectionate words, they build up children. Affectionate words, they build up friendships. Affectionate words build up churches. Affectionate words bring safety. A man's words and his actions make, the man's words and his actions, they make his lover feel very secure. So she says in chapter two, verse three, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall. Let his banner over me be love. She delights to sit in his shade. Her lover sees her, he knows her and he protects her and she could not feel more safe. You see, here is a relationship as God intended, a model for all relationships, not just marriages. Every person needs and deserves secure relationships, relationships in which they feel safe. They need them in their home, they need them in friendships, and they need them at church. Now, none of us are perfect. We need to be honest that we can use our words to make a person feel secure or insecure. We can use our words to make a person feel loved or loathed, to feel included or excluded. So we need, to, we need to own up and we need to take responsibility for our words. Because words that people hear, they are never forgotten. Every sarcastic comment, every racist remark, every awful text message, every cutting uh, comment on the internet, we need to own them because our words reflect our hearts. And we probably need to repent to God and and seek forgiveness from others for words that we've said that have caused great insecurity and great damage to those around us and we need to ask God to help us to speak words that make those around us feel loved and secure and built up now come with me to uh, verse 8 of chapter 2 it's action time for our lovers uh chapter 8 verse uh, sorry chapter 2 verse 8 sorry um Chapter 2, verse 8, he bounds up to her like a gazelle and he calls her twice uh, in verse 10 and verse 13. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. Uh, and now whether this is kind of the leading up to their wedding or some reunion after being apart from, uh, for a period of time, whatever it is, the waiting is now over and they can be together. It's now for them to time for them to explore and to to live and to experience love in all its fullness uh, and his body is pumping and expectation is building and Kenny G is playing and then he says something that's absolutely crazy verse 14 my dove in the clefts of the rocks in the hiding places on the mountainside show me your face let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely Here is a bloke saying to his wife, I want to hear your voice. He's saying, let's talk. Uh, You've probably seen the cartoon, uh, man on the couch, uh, sky on the TV, watching the footy and his wife is walking out the door with her bags packed, she's leaving. And the comment is, hey babe, can we talk about our communication issues at halftime? But not the man here. He wants to sit down and listen to his wife. Let me hear your voice. He doesn't have his phone in his hand. He's not rushing off to work. He's not fitting her in. He desperately wants to stop and to listen and to talk. And then he says in verse 15, verse 15, Catch the foxes, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. Now it's a tricky verse. But what I think it is saying is, I'd like to talk, I'd like to relate, but we need to get rid of the things that are getting in the way. We need to get rid of the foxes that are ruining the vineyard. Now the foxes, they could be tiredness. We need to work on our tiredness so that we can communicate better. The foxes, they may be overly focused on our children because our children, they're all we ever talk about. The foxes there could be pornography or another person in the relationship that's stopping us from communicating openly and freely with one another. Whatever the fox is, the lovers say we will put them aside. We will remove them because we need to talk. We need to communicate. Because godly relationships depend on good communication. And Solomon is saying, is saying this, he's saying this as though I wish this is what I did. You see, Solomon, he had hundreds of wives and every day he'd point to one and he'd point to his bedroom and that was all the communication they ever had. And Solomon reflects by saying, how stupid am I? I missed out on talking with my beloved. Now today, as we've begun our time in Song of Songs, we've seen that words matter. The lover's words, they are affectionate, they are bold, they uplift, they heal, they nurture, they provide safety and security. And godly relationships and godly friendships and churches, they grow with good communication. And these lover's words in the Song of Songs, they are a small reflection for us, a small reflection of the greatest lover in the universe. And his name of Jesus is Jesus. You've probably heard the words before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. For God so loved. You see, Jesus not only speaks affectionate words to us, but he puts his affection into action. And he came to earth and he died on that cross for your sins and he rose from the dead. So Jesus is the most perfect lover and he loves you. And Jesus is behind every good, loving relationship in the world, whether it be marriages or friendships or families or churches. Because God-like relationships, they are not built on human strength. This is not just telling us to try harder in our relationships, just to do better. No, godly relationships are an overflow of a relationship with Jesus, if your relationship with Jesus is strong, if you love Jesus with all your heart, then you will relate well to your spouse. Then you will relate well to your children and to your friends and your family and your work colleagues. I'm going to finish the, with the words of a uh, missionary, C.T. Studd, uh, when he was reflecting on the connection between what we love and what we say. Uh, Studd says this, he says, Whatever moves the heart wags the tongue whatever moves the heart wags the tongue may it be God who moves our hearts so that our words might be words that bring hope and security and love to those around us will you pray with me Heavenly Father we thank you for your words to us the way they speak of your good creation that you've blessed us with, the way they share your wisdom to us, the way that they comfort and heal us. Lord, we thank you for your words to us in the gospel, the way that it speaks of the hope that we can have in Jesus, the rescue and salvation in him. And Lord, we pray that we might have words that flow from hearts filled with love for you, and that those words might bring hope and healing to those around us. Well, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if the music is to come up, we're going to continue to respond to what we've heard God say uh, through the words of this next song. Uh, and uh, in this song, it reflects on uh, the way that God has loved us and the way that God has spoken us. Uh, And that he has done that in a way that drives away our fear. Uh, That drives away our fear, drives away our sin and our brokenness and our shame and our guilt, as God has loved us in Jesus. Uh, So please stand as we uh, respond to God's word together.